Hi, my name is Andy Day. I'm the founder and CEO of Capital A. Welcome to M&A Q&A. Today, we have Ian Milner, co-founder and chairman of Iris Worldwide. Ian founded Iris with his business partner, Stu, in 1999. It seems almost by accident, pitching and winning their first client and then growing the business for nearly 20 years to over 100 million in revenue before being acquired three years ago by Samsung. During that time, Ian has made a number of acquisitions, a self-confessed M&A-aholic, Iris has been making roughly one acquisition a year for as long as Ian can remember. His only regret has been not starting M&A sooner. A super down-to-earth guy, Ian is one of the most laid-back, high-powered agency CEOs I've ever met and has a reputation in the industry for being approachable and easygoing. His LinkedIn bio describes him as an ordinary person who gets to work with extraordinary people. I'm sure during this interview, we'll get to find out exactly why Ian is definitely not an ordinary guy. And we're going to dig deep into his background, his agency, his acquisitions, and his exit to Samsung. Ian, welcome. How are you? Yeah, I'm all right. Thank you. Doing my best. Laid back as ever, just a, a laid back, uh, how are you? Well, we're going to kick off with a quick background check on you, Ian. This is what we do every week with our guests. So we'd like to know who you are and how you got to be in the seat today. Um, how did you get started in your career? Your background has pretty much been agencies from straight out of uni. Yeah, that's right. I um, At college, I did PE and movement science, and it, it took me to the end of the second year to work out that wasn't really going to take me very far. So I, I, um, I started to get interested in, um, in psychology, or more precisely, social psychology, why people do what they do. Um, and that, that got me interested in marketing. And then when I finished my uh, kind of my CPE degree, I, I, then, I then did a postgraduate year in marketing. And from there, I got into the, the graduate schemes of all the big ad agencies. And uh, I think I just accidentally ticked the uh, below the line box and, uh, and ended up working at an agency called IMP, which, which was part of DMBNB, and now Leo Burnett, ARC. And kind of, you know, I really, really enjoyed it, basically. Had a, had a good few years, got to about 26, 27, and then just two or three of us one day just got talking. And we, we were working, all of us had an interest in, in a client at, at the time called Ericsson. One thing led to another, and before we knew it, we were, we were basically pitching to, to Ericsson about a new startup called Iris. And um, kind of once we'd done that presentation, there was kind of no going back, really. Yeah, um, I'm, I'm going to ask you about that in a sec. So your, your early days, that, uh, obviously a, a northerner, and you went to uni in Liverpool, I believe. I and where, where did you do your postgrad? Was that Liverpool again? Yeah, same place. Brilliant, brilliant. And where was IMP based when, when you got started with that? Because I was, I mean, yeah. I hate to say it, Ian, but it was quite a while ago now. Yeah, oh yeah, thanks very much. Um, it, it, it was, and uh, yeah, it was in Knightsbridge, and um, I don't think I'd ever been to Knightsbridge, but I knew that Harrods was there, so I was I was excited. So yeah, for a few years, I, you know, I was I was sort of living in Kensington and working in Knightsbridge, which I, I, I didn't really know London at all, so I didn't really know. I didn't realise, you know, how lucky I was. Yeah, you went to the poshest part. I mean, uh, you could have ended up somewhere much worse, I should imagine. Yeah. Um, so I'd really like to get uh, stuck into those early days at ARC and how you tr- transitioned from, I believe you're an account management person first, were you? Uh, and then to agency owner. But how, how did that journey happen? 
I mean, it was just really quick. I just really enjoyed it and worked really hard. And I was very ambitious. I had to sort of make it work because, you know, I was like the first person in my family to kind of go to university and then, you know, leave Buxton. So I just, I was, I was really committed. And I didn't realise at the time, but I was just really committed. I worked, worked so hard. And, you know, did, you know, did pretty well and you know, found myself getting promoted really quickly. And I wasn't in any way unhappy with where I was. It was just one of these sort of totally kind of random, you know, off-the-cuff opportunistic sort of events that, that, you know, just happened. And, you know, I just figured at 26, 27, well, if it goes wrong, the worst that's going to happen, I'll probably get another job and possibly be paid more. And so so why not, really? And it, it was... Did you recognise that? together. Sorry. Did you recognise that early on? Was there an ambition to own your own business or be an entrepreneur? Or was it just a natural? Because you're only there like six years and then suddenly well, you're running yeah, your own. Yeah, less than that, really. But yeah, it wasn't that I was a kind of known entrepreneur. You know, I was really, really happy in, a, in the sort of agency setting that I was in. And, you know, I, could, I was ambitious. I could see myself doing really well. And I, 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 it was just an accident. Wow. Um, I, mean, I think one of the things though is like I, I was always quite good at just committing to things and backing myself and um, you know you never make the right decision do you it's about making the decisions that you make right so it, 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 I always sort of had that view which has made it easier for me to just do things and, and commit to things and back things and recognize that nothing's perfect and, and there's no you know, absolutely right or absolutely wrong, you know, it's just doing things that, you know, you, you, you feel are going, taking you in the right direction and could lead to more things and back yourself to make them make the best out of whatever situation you find yourself in. Mm. So, I mean, you say it was almost an accident. So do you remember organising your, you, yourself and was it you straight off the bat you guys were involved in this new agency that you were doing? Do you remember who the first client was that you pitched together? Well, yeah, I mean, it, it, it was... Um, it was Ericsson and or Sony Ericsson, and they they agreed to give us a, a, a project, no strings, <laughs> no commitment, and you know that was enough for us. You know we we gave it a go, and at, at that point in time, you know Apple didn't exist or it existed, but they weren't doing phones, and I think they had some like twenty five percent market share, and they were really interested in anything to do with you know youth and your music and all these sorts of things that, you know, we just because we were young, it was just easier for us to sort of take a claim to that sort of territory. And uh, yeah, no, we, we went in and won a couple of projects and projects became more more projects. And before we knew it, we were we were doing everything for Sony Ericsson in the UK. And, and that was a really sizable relationship. And Shui and a lot of the other founders really concentrated on making the most of that relationship and that became our, our network you know that led us into international expansion and also diversification in terms of skills mm. uh, and because it's it's telecoms you, you've got to move quickly and i concentrated on looking for, for our next client well um, I, I think i had a sony ericsson around that time so it's obviously down to you guys marketing it was heavily marketed again because uh, i was working in the music industry at the time as well so it was, uh, heavily marketed towards music, wasn't it? So that must have been you guys that were responsible. Um, you said to me that you'd wish that Iris had got involved in acquisitions a lot earlier on. Mm. Can you talk us through that and what, what held you back at the start from making make acquisition? How long did you go for with organic growth? Yeah, I mean, uh, because we had 
an amazing cornerstone founding client that was growing and also wanting us to do more work. Organic growth was very easy in, in the first few years. But we probably got to like eight, nine, ten years in. And that was the first point when acquisition became a kind of serious way forward for us. And we actually acquired a management consulting business. They were really strong in kind of data and technology, gaming, gambling in that, in that area. A small team, you know, six people. And it, and it was an area that we couldn't naturally get into organically. You know, it, 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 was, it required real experts with, with real pedigree. And, and we just thought that strategically would also enable us to have much more of a deeper relationship of, of, of greater influence with clients. And so we, we, we acquired a management consulting business called Concise. And um, it, was, it was really good, really successful. They flourished within, within Iris. You know, they brought a lot of new skills, allowed us to have a lot of uh, different types of conversation clients. We also then rolled them out across our fledgling network. So um, Iris Concise, as it then became, uh, crop, cropped up in quite a few different areas and started to, to you know, really add value to, to, to the nature of our, our business. Mm. I think these still around as part of the business today. Um, I think two or three of them are still are still with us. Um, I mean, obviously, with these things, you create a, a, an environment where the founders can 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 stay and want to stay. And, and most often, over our journey with an M and A, we, we've been able to do that because that they've been able to see that they're now part of something big, and, and it's as much theirs as it is ours. Obviously, at some point in time, you know that 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 doesn't work. So, you know, um, so you, you just got to you've got to like you've certainly got to think that through and, and try to deliver that so that people can see extended careers beyond beyond an earnout. And but but it just it doesn't always work like that. Well, I mean, it sounds like a really successful first acquisition, and and you did say to me, like I just mentioned, that you really wish you'd started a lot earlier. And obviously, it was a, it was off to the race of the great successful start and acquisitions, and then you made several more. I mean, I, I believe your your numbers are something like one a year after that. But that's right. Yeah. Um, were they all as successful as that first one? Um, some some were were more successful, and there's probably one or two that were less successful, and. In all cases, the, the, the things that's different about it is how much are you paying? <laughs> uh, and, uh, you know, so therefore, what's the sort of ROI? What's the deal and structure and pricing? And also, do, do, do the people do the, behind that business have some sort of affinity with you that means that they want to stick around? They're, they're the two main things that determine whether or not it, 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 was, a good, it was a good deal or, or a bad deal. Right. Um, obviously, you do everything that you can. You do due diligence and, and, and all these other things, but um, really, it all boils down to that. I mean, there was a business that we acquired that we 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 acquired for nearly nothing, and it was 120 people. They had three offices: there Chicago, Munich, and uh, and Singapore. And you know, a lot of those people stuck around, and, and they, they saw real value in being part of Iris. They rebranded immediately. You know, their their CEO, ten years on, is still still is still at Iris. Right. Whereas there was another business, a business in this sort of data and analytics space, and, and I think two of them left the day we inked the deal. And it's like, 
That's always the, oh, worst, right. the worst fear, isn't it? We're just going to be superior your cash. So it does happen. Well, I was going to ask you about that deal. So you, you've already given us a bit of detail on that. But very generally speaking, can you can you give us a sort of inkling into how, and maybe not now you're, you're part of a big organisation because probably, there's probably some kind of corporate way of doing it. But previously, when you were Iris Worldwide as an independent, how do you make those deals? What roughly would you say a deal is going to look like if you're going into a conversation with a, an agency? What have you got in your mind of how to get a deal done? Yeah, I mean, um, I think you, you definitely need people around you that know what they're doing and have seen all sorts of sizes, shapes and situations. I think it, it, it depends where, where you are at in your market and, and how valuable your brand is because we, we've always gone into these thinking there is no set formula, there's no set rules, it's look at it case by case. It's build a relationship. Make sure there's a proper strategy so that they can see that pitching a ride with, with you is going to be really valuable for them, their clients, their families, their other stakeholders and shareholders. So it's really about you know, carefully thinking through you know, w- what is it about coming together that makes it really worthwhile and, and worth more. And where, where we've done that well, We've ended up with an amazing relationship and it's it's been really valuable and had great ROI and you know all of the things that we <laughs> wanted to happen have happened. And and you know, there's been once or twice where where, where that, that hasn't hasn't quite been the case. But and, and I think it's all about sort of thinking through, well, um, if you're going to do it, you've got to be thinking, how do you get real value from this? And in our sector, it's really about the longer you keep the talent, the more value you will get from from, from that acquisition you keep your talent you keep the clients but you've got a chance of uh also you know g- g- growing or integrating the skills or, or whatever it is that you know is the sort of strategic rationale for for yeah. buying that business in the first place i think that's when, when people are approaching m a for the first time they really think that it's about lots of other things like you know the deal itself and what the shape of that deal looks like. But actually, you've just touched on something that's really important, and that's about pitching your big idea to the, the sellers. I think it feels like if you're offering them a big wad of cash, that they should be happy uh, just to be selling their baby. But actually, you have to, you have to, you have to sell yourself. It's a big part of, of being able to get a deal done. It, it's as much about you selling to them as them selling to you. It really is. And, and big wad of cash equals bigger risk. You know, bigger challenges if you want to get you know proper return on that on that investment. Mm. And 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 I, and I think generally, in my experience, that is how it how it works. And that M um, and A within the industry it usually is driven by the, you know the, the the deal architecture. You know, it's, uh, the, the the multiple and, and consideration and all these things. It's done on a spreadsheet without really thinking through. You know, what does it really take to to, to make uh, this new relationship really works. So in the lo- in the long run, uh, you know everyone everyone's better off. Because also, if you if you if you start to become a regular acquirer, you need a reputation. You need you need a, a an acquisition brand that you know means that every time you go into these meetings, people think you're credible and can believe what believe that you want you want this deal to go well. So and and you want to pay the founders. The money that that you said you would, um, yeah. 
and and and, and that that is about trust. And it, is, it is about your reputation, and and that that really does matter in the end in terms of your your ability to to attract people, because it also means people will do deals for you mm. at, at a lower price because they know that you know a lot of acquisitions don't go according to plan. Right. Can you give us any kind of, um, sort of tips around integrations and post deal? How you've managed to to integrate these businesses so well? Because it sounds like you have done pretty well out there. I know. Um, you mentioned there a few times that you kind of did a co-brand as well. So anything around? Yeah, that? yeah. I think, um, and, and again, it's a bit like do, do selecting and then doing deals. There's no kind of there shouldn't be, you shouldn't go in with a, this is how we do things here. You know, you should just take your time to sort of work out what's the what's the situation. And it's the same with post post acquisition. Just really think through what are you dealing with? What's the team? How good are they? How do they go, get on with everybody else? You know, what what property have you just acquired? You know, what, what leases and commitments are there? Is there a case for bringing them into, into your business physically? What about the branding? You know, in, in, in some of our acquisitions, overnight, we've changed the brand and then they've become... Do you have a rule you know, of thumb? Branded office. In, in, in some, we, we, just, we just left them alone with their own brand and in some, they became co-branded. We, we took a case-by-case basis, but the overriding principle is don't do anything stupid. Don't do anything in a rush and don't do anything that destroys the value in the thing that you just bought. Right. So there, there wasn't even a, a, a rule of thumb to, to go in with the, the branding side of things. Some of you just left running under their own brands and others you, you brought in. We, we, we did. We did. And, and, and in some cases, it depends on the sort of nature, the personalities of the, of the leadership teams. Some are very independently minded. You know, they're entrepreneurs that build good businesses, you know. Mm. They... they and there was something about entrepreneurs in, in general where they just don't like to be told what to do. I think that's agency. I'm, ter- I'm a terrible employee. You know? That's agency CEOs in general, isn't it? Agency bosses, none of them want to be told. <laughs> but it's, you know, it's just one of those things to think of. And I just think that um, in, in many cases, people forget the sort of human psychology of acquisitions, yeah. particularly when you're dealing with the most valuable person or people within the thing that you have just bought you know you've got to you know got to try to understand it from their perspective and, and you know what makes them tick and what, why why have they done what they have done as opposed to just taking a normal more linear sort of career you know in, in a in a, a network and then you almost made it 20 years before the Samsung deal came along uh, we'll get to that in a minute but what did iris look like at this stage so just pre the Samsung deal, how many acquisitions did you do and what were you looking like as a, as a business at that point? Um, yeah. yeah, I mean, we'd, we'd done it right. I mean, it was probably, yeah, it's probably, it was 20 years in and uh, I think we'd already done a couple of deals before that. So I think uh, one of the things about growing your business is I think in general, agency entrepreneurs, that they, they think of deals or M&A, if you like, as, 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 you know, a destination as opposed to it being part of the journey. And we, we did a deal um, around about the time we did our first acquisition where um, the bank became a shareholder, a minority shareholder. Uh, and we, we won a kind of entrepreneur's competition. You know, it was a bit like sort of Dragon's Den style thing where we sort of pitched our network to a panel that they they they, they gave it, you know, the, the nod and mm-hmm. it won. And then we got a load of debt and equity from the bank. And that then led to, you know, a few years worth of, of expansion. And then we exited the bank a few years later to, um, to a company called Meredith, which is a sort of US-based publisher. 
mm-hmm. we wanted to um, exp- diversify out of out of the US and diversify into more like marketing than the media, and we wanted to learn more about content. And that was there was a really good relationship for a few years, and that was a, another minority deal. And then a few years later, um, we, we were we were actually we looked at all sorts of options. We looked at you know a lot of private equity, family office things. We looked at some of the networks. And in the end, in the end, we we, we picked Shale or, or, or Samsung, um, uh, and and it was to do with um, we we would we would be very different in their business. We would stand out. They would leave us leave us alone to be ourselves and be our brand because they were looking for us and, and you know what our skills provided. We we would be big enough in their organisation as well. You know, you've got to think about how big are you relative to the person buying you because mm-hmm. that determines what they can pay for you as well as how important you will be later. So there's all sorts of things like that that a lot of people just don't really think about. You know, everyone just thinks about money and you know it's a short it's a short term exercise and. And that, that's cool for, for most people, but for, for, for me, that, that was never going to be enough. And we did a really good deal. It was actually it was five year now, and which is a sort of which is relatively long. But our our guess was that there'd be loads of benefits that came through being part of you know Samsung organisation. And I mean the other the other calculation that we made at the time was we've always been very much a kind of cooperative. And whilst I've been whilst I've been CEO. Um, it's still been very much about making sure that our shareholders have a route to value. And we probably have 45, 50 shareholders. And after 20 years or so, or so you've got to think, at some point, I've got to show these people you know, cash. You know, they've got mortgages. They've got kids at school. So it, it became very much about, about timing. And you know, we, we got to a point where it just felt like the, the, the right the right time to now start taking some money off the table, and I think that was the right that was the right um, thing to do. Do you, uh, do you still have a? I mean, it's a bit personal, but do you still have a shareholding in in the business? No, no, no. We, I mean, fully exited all right. all in one go, if you like, over over that five year run now. So I've been I've been at Iris for two years after the end of the year now. Okay, fantastic. And since being part of Samsung, how has sort of the M&A side of things changed? Has there still been a continuous drive for you to make acquisitions or has that now shifted to the parent company or, or are you still doing that sort of thing? Well, we, we were acquiring throughout our now, and, and that actually was pretty good. You know, we, I mean, before and during the now, you know, we, we, were, we, were, we were using lots of M&A and we were looking for good opportunities. We were looking for People that would just fit our team, looking for skill sets or or, or certain geographies, and and, and and during the year now, we you know we, we we got some really good acquisitions away, and it changes the sort of approval dynamic, and you have to be more we had to be more considered and strategic about about what we were doing, and we 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 had to get approval from Samsung Chairman's office each time we did an acquisition. Um, um, what, it, what, it, what what size were those agencies sort of headcount? 50, 60 people. Right. That's a really reasonable, reasonable. Oh, yeah, reason, you know, million EBITDA sort of level businesses. But, but again, it goes back, you know, if, if whenever, there's a, whenever there's approval needed, whether it's, you know, the bank or, you know, anyone, <laughs> anyone, if you've got track record, if you've got credibility, if you've got story, if you've got your story straight, you know, why are you doing this? How are you going to do it? How are you going to make it work and valuable? What's going to happen? 
you know, a few years down the track, um, once you've done the deal, you know, all these things that, you know, if you've got all that together and you, and you know why that matters to people, if, mm-hmm. if you're going to, like, get, gain approval on getting some money or whatever. I kind of want to get into that just a, a little bit because we're getting close to wrapping up now. So just, I mean, we always ask our guests about the financial side of things because I think that's a big sticking point for, for people that are coming into m for the first time. They wonder how they're going to get the finance together to make a deal happen. So is there any sort of, apart from obviously getting your story straight, which you've just told us and and that part of it, of it is there any tricks that you've learned over the years to get the, the finance part of it together? Is there a place that you, you go in particular to find that or somebody that does that for you? Yeah, I mean, um, we, we've used uh, uh, debt mainly. And before our deal, that we, we would raise ourselves mainly from our own bank using, you know, our trading performance and our balance sheet. And, and we found that quite straightforward. Yeah. Um, and then um, after the year, during the year now, we, we would get that money from, from Samsung and from uh, Bank of Korea. And there wasn't much difference in that process other than there was just a bit more, uh, a bit more obvious, you know, uh, scrutiny. From, you know, from, from Samsung and, and Bank of Korea, because they're in the end they're they're trading on the on the Korean stock market. Yeah. Um, but um, I think that's the, the, the other thing is like the other thing. The other thing is about it doesn't always have to be about money. It's also it's also about your your equity and and your your journey and your destination. So that whether it's all about money or about money and shares, that matters. So if if you can be selling to people. That becoming part of you is the answer to their question. <laughs> um, uh, then, then, and, and they're comfortable and they trust you because they can see that it's going to be more valuable, more rewarding, more enjoyable, better for their clients, and better for their shareholders. If you can win that that battle, then you know everything is easier and, and, and cheaper. Whether it's all about money, or money and shares, or just or just shares in your own business. Yeah. Okay, brilliant. And yeah, I think the, the, the good message from that is that there isn't any weird place that you have to come up with to go and find the finance to get a deal together. It's actually just your your own business bank. I mean, it's pretty much the best place to go and get it and the least expensive in the long term as well. So you you, uh, you obviously did take on equity partners and different things over the years to fund various things. But it sounds like, generally speaking, you funded funded stuff through the business bank. That you're associated with. Okay, let's come right up to date. So, what's the the future look like for you personally and for Iris in general? Yeah, I mean, um, so I handed over the sort of CEO role to to Steve, who um, is, is another founder of Iris. So that the Steve Bell is now the global CEO, and, and Claire Humphreys is the CEO of London. And they're, they're the two key positions in the Iris group, and both of those those people were were part of the founding team 22, 23 years ago. And, and, I, and I'm, I'm chair, but I, I'm now also now taking on broader responsibilities across Chael and, and the Chael agencies um, and then the, and the other affiliate brands. So I'm just about to, to, to sort of go to market with, with that um, in the next couple of weeks. And that, that will give me exposure to, you know, lots more agency leaders and agency brands and, um, you know, let's see how that goes. <laughs> So there's a, a career trajectory with, yeah. within the, the bigger business for you as well. So no, no chance of retirement anytime soon, cocktails on the beach. 
period. <laughs> not really, not really. I mean, I, I really love what what we do, and it was never about the money. It was always about you know the adventure, and and I, you know, like I say, I, I enjoy it, and you know, I'm, I'm involved in pictures and clients still, and you know, I, I, I think that's really good. Would you ever start it all again? Go out and start something again from scratch. We had Martin Sorrell on on this a few months ago, and uh, my my question to him was, how would you do it? So, what would you do if you had to start again from scratch? Well, um, I, I'm I'm certainly getting more involved now at a non-exec and an investor level. Right. So, more about just sitting behind other people and, and allowing other people to have their opportunity, but guiding them. So I've got I've got two or three really good non-exec relationships that I really enjoy, and I've got two or three in, uh, relationships that are more like I'm a shareholder in their business. Right. Um, so I'm I'm doing more and more more of that, and obviously as I get older, I, I suspect that my, my energy levels won't, won't quite be where where they were in terms of you know frontline action. So I'll probably you know gradually migrate to you know um, um, more of a more of a non-exec. Brilliant. And just very generally, before we close, is there any advice that you would give to anyone listening to this podcast? So, for example, our listeners are mostly sort of agency CEOs or aspiring agency founders that haven't quite made the jump yet. Yeah, I mean, obviously, you've got to enjoy it. You know, we are so fortunate to sort of live and work in a sort of industry that you know, it's just full of great characters and, and really interesting. You, but you've got to enjoy it. You know, you've got to kind of gamify it. You know, you've got to you've got to think of it as a grand caper. And if if you're feeling like it's 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 a bit of a grind and it feels just a bit too much like a job, you, you might be looking at it differently, or, or or you know, you might need to think about some adjustments there. I think you've got to be ambitious. You, you've got to also remember, you know, everybody's sort of in the same boat and everybody has difficulties, but. It really is about thinking how do you how do you stand out how do you you know keep keep bouncing back how do you keep your resilience levels up and how do you you know make sure you've got a, a definite culture in your business as well because you'll find that, that that's protective that's like a massive insurance policy it'll be the power that you know makes you succeed in the end but um, it's also the, you know there will be things that go wrong but it, it'll be the thing that just sort of keeps keeps the thing moving or, or even if you're having a, you know an off day or you're on holiday or you're not feeling well or whatever it is it's the thing that just keeps everything powered and you might want to think as, as, as part of that you know making sure you're, you're rewarding people with equity in it so that everyone's got skin in the game and everyone's pulling together I mean there's no there's no kind of universal way either as well you know different people have got different ways and you know when I've looked at businesses that we've acquired I've seen how much equity some of the founders have relative to everybody else. Mm. Um, so there's no kind of, you know, right way or, or, or wrong way. But my, my personal beliefs are if you're going to go big and long and do anything that's really, really good, you, you know, you really do have to kind of share the share the ownership, share the risk, share the reward with mm. people in it. Brilliant. Thank you for that. Right, we're just about to open the floor, so to speak. But can you uh, tell us how we can stay in touch with Ian, Ian Milner? Where can we follow what you're up to and get hold of you? Where do you exist on the internet? Well, my email address is the best place. So it's, you know, my Iris email address is ian.milner at iris-worldwide.com. That's probably the, 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 the best place. But yeah, I'm you know, always available and, and open. So. Brilliant. Brilliant. Any social medias where we can find you? You're not much of a, a poster. Not really. 
Okay. <laughs> maybe I should be. Yeah, maybe that's your next career as a YouTuber. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so uh, there's an opportunity now for everybody to ask a few questions before you run out of time. I think we've got four or five minutes left, so we'll just open the, the mics up. Is there uh, any questions from anybody on here? Okay, sure. Samir? Um, hi, Ian. I'm uh, Samir. I'm uh, the founder of uh, a customer experience platform company called Altudo, based out of New York and uh, out of India. And, uh, you know, uh, you've been on the acquisition end of things. And recently, we've been getting uh, a lot of inbound inquiries from M&A, from various interesting parties. And it, it just... Um, I, you know, I, and and like you've said, I think you you said something that resonated with me that the the story is key. Like, what is the story you're approaching a target with? Because the question is, like, you know, it, is our future together going to be better? And that's yeah. oftentimes when we're on the receiving end of these things. So, you know, as the recipient of M and A inquiries, um, sort of what are what are what some of the advice that you would give us? Uh, because Often it comes down to, you know, beta multiples, 12, 13. Uh, you know, it just comes down to this kind of thought process. But what's your, what would be your advice or, you know, top two or three things that I know it's a short call, but off the top of your head, because this is a business we've built over 20 years. And if we're, if we're going to, uh, we're doing fine. We've grown at 600% over the last nine quarters, um, self-funded. We certainly want to go to a bigger platform, but you know, I would like to just get your insight on what's in it for us to jump on board with someone, you know, and and what are the things we should think about as we do that. I mean, many many congratulations. Basically, it sounds like you've done really well, and um, I think the most important thing is is this thing around timing, and you know, going back to, to our example. A load of us were sort of roughly the same sort of age or life stage, I should I should say, and um, it, it just became clear that you know that now was the time to enable people to to to, to monetize their equity, and I think that's probably the most important thing about where where you're at. It's, it's if you feel good and you don't you don't feel like you need the money, or if you've got a very a very tight group of shareholders, you, you might you might want to think about about powering on or or, or not, but Sooner or later, you know, you, you, you'll get someone who just comes knocking, and they just, you just like the sound of them, and something about it feels different because it just fits. They get you, or you, you, I, you know, you relate to their stories a bit better. Because um, I think once you've been doing a business for twenty years or so, it's more than just a startup thing that you've made. You've made a scale up. You know, it, it, it's it's who you are. So it's not like it's just a job anymore that you can just walk away from. Um, you know, it, it's it's sort of deeper than that. So I think I think asking them about you know where they where are they going and, and make sure you're you're clear on their culture and who they are and why they're doing it and why they're interested in you and, and and all the rest of it. I think that's probably the most important. But the, the main thing is timing. So when you say timing, I thought it would be market timing because you know there's always where the markets are moving. The markets seem to be hot and heavy right now. For customer experience, digital experience, uh, but but you've said also it's a personal timing uh, uh, sort of a notion. The only thing I would just uh, uh, just to give others a chance to say something 
the, the delta between a deal advisor approaching you and the story they tell versus the principal sometimes becomes, there's sometimes a delta between those two things. So there's a sales process that goes on and then the post-sales process somehow isn't as exciting as what the deal advisor tells you. Yeah, you're, you're, you're so right. And um, in, in every situation that I've been exposed to that sort of scenario, people are very quick to come up with a sort of impressive price or figure. Hmm. But in, in truth, it's that they then they then make you work through extended um, discussions, negotiations, diligence that gr- gradually erode erode those figures. So that that's really normal, and, and that's something to be really mindful of. And, and and that's why I think your timing matters because it's it's if, if you're ready to start thinking about this and thinking about deals and being open to to opportunities and offers, it's also about making sure that you know you, you've got your your team ready to go. You've got all of your all of your data. There's no holes in it. There's no way anyone could sort of chip away at things either. Or, you know, because because that is that is what they're doing. That's what they're trying to do. And usually, what happens is you know you go you go through that for months and months and months, and then in the end, you just agree to it anyway, even though you might have lost. Oh no, I'm you know, I'm familiar with it. Yeah, yeah. Well, I've I've been a venture capitalist for many years. I mean, I'm the CIO of the company. My brother's the CEO. So. Any holes in DD, FDD, LDD, I mean, we only use it for one thing, to just beat down valuation. So I get it, you know. I, I, <laughs> I've been on the given side of that. But uh, thank you very much. I give opportunity. Yeah, thank you for that, Samir. Uh, so I'm aware we're, we're tight on time now. Ian. Alexander, did you have a, a question at all? Actually, my question was answered partly with uh, what Samir asked. So that was perfect timing. Anything else? Anything else? We've, we've literally got in now for a few more minutes. One more minute. So. Actually, I would ask Ian this if he's interested. Like at the beginning of your acquisition campaign, did you have a goal of how big of a company you wanted to, to build? Um, and also, did you achieve that goal? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, um, we, we didn't have a set kind of perspective or point of view on on scale and. And, and therefore, it's impossible to know if we've achieved, <laughs> achieved it or not. So it's a really, it's a really good thing. And I, and I think that's probably one of the big things, the big learnings. Uh, because we were we started it very young, it was very cultural and entrepreneurial. You're making it as you go along. And you're never, you're never totally sure. You're never totally committed to you know, a, a size, a scale, evaluation, whatever. And I, and I, think, I think it would have been better if we were um, and that would have also let, led us into more M&A earlier as well, I think, um, and less, you know, just just give it a go, organic stuff. We, we, we did a lot of that. And some of that's worked and, and some of it hasn't. Uh, but I think it would have been best if we'd had a much clearer, a much clearer mission. You know? He still still managed to be hugely successful without, without much of a plan at the start by the sounds of it. So... Fantastic. Really, really grateful. And thank you for your time, Ian. I appreciate yeah, you. you crammed us into a very busy schedule today. So thank you very much. Uh, just to remind to anybody listening or watching to push the subscribe button. We're available on most podcast platforms and on YouTube as well. So again, thank you very much, Ian, for your time. And thank you for everybody who's attended today um, and those that have asked questions as well. It is M&A Q&A after all. All right. Thanks a lot. We'll see you soon. Good luck. Bye. Thank you. Bye.